welcome to episode 17 of Your Hearth at Home. My name is Tara and I am so grateful that you are here. If you have been enjoying this podcast offering so far, please take a moment now to rate, review, and subscribe. This makes a huge difference for me and I would so appreciate it. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jane Carmelamo. She is a neurodiverse multi-instrumentalist and end-of-life doula residing in Maple Ridge, BC. As a trigger warning, we do speak a lot about death and dying in this episode, so please know that going in. However, speaking about this topic with Jane is so refreshing because she comes at it with an open mind and an open heart, illuminating the shadows that creep in when we leave this topic untouched. She speaks to so many important considerations that are present for her in her work as an end-of-life doula, and how she combines this with her passion for music to be of the utmost service to her community. I hope that you enjoy. Welcome back to your hearth at home. I am so extremely grateful to be here today with Jane Carmelamo. She is an end-of-life doula and a musician based out of Maple Ridge. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, I am extremely excited to hear about all that you have to share um, with all of your experience and Perhaps we can start with a bit of context, um, how you've come through your journey to the space of an end-of-life doula musician and, and how that's all come about for you. For sure. It's a long story and I tend to ramble, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Hopefully I don't ramble too much. <laughs> perfect. <clears throat> so... I guess what probably came first was my music. So I'll like start from there. Uh, my father is a musician. And so I, I attribute a lot of those gifts to his teaching and his influence. So I started uh, with probably piano when I was quite young and really actively resisted that because it was a little more structured than I think I would have liked as a child. And, but it really did give me a good solid foundation for music theory. Uh, so, you know, I resisted that and didn't really pursue that. Uh, but then at about age 11, 12, started playing bass and uh, started more in the school band setting and, and just, I think I chose that instrument because I just really liked rock music, alternative music, uh, and that was the closest instrument I could play in the bands to, to a rock instrument. Um, and so, yeah, that was where my music journey started, and I started writing songs at a pretty young age and expressing myself that way. And I lived in a really small town, uh, Summerland, BC. And there weren't a lot of like-minded souls there, I found. So I was mostly creating a lot on my own and um, didn't really start jamming or playing with other people other than like my dad and his friends until I moved down to the coast to go to university. And uh, so, then I would have jams with friends and 
late night sessions and things. And, and, and then as I moved through university and started dating my husband and eventually had kids sort of life got in the way and I, my music fell off a little bit and I didn't really come back to it super strongly until probably about three years ago. I, with the kids, would sing them children's songs and, you know, bust out some Raffi and stuff, but, <laughs> but wasn't really doing a lot of songwriting or um, collaborations or anything like that in there. <clears throat> so, yeah, about three, three years ago or so, um, I started doing more of my own composition and just processing my feelings through music. I really use that as a tool for processing emotion. I think it's really valuable. A lot of my songs end up coming out really sad and <laughs> dark. <laughs> and my dad often uh, says, God, this, why, is it, why does it always have to sound so sad and <laughs> depressing? <laughs> and I, my response is, well, that's where it goes. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I that's where that's where those feelings go. For me they go into my music and and they flow there. Mm -hmm. And and it's a release. So yeah, a lot of my music is really emotional, a lot of really emotional content. Um and I have done a few collaborations. I have a lot of my solo stuff on all the various, you know, streaming platforms. And uh, so I have things under Jane Carmelamo. I have an electronic project um, under Sacred Cranium. And then I, I was doing some collab with a drummer. His name is Weston Philp, and I was working with him for a little while. We did a project called Life Path Nine. And some of that music is up as well. And then one of my favorite collabs has been Sisters in Sound, which is with three other beautiful women, Angela Pryder, Sky Bray, and Elise de Villers. I'm terrible with her last name. <laughs> I'm sorry, Elise. <laughs> I didn't rehearse beforehand. Um, and uh, it's just, uh, it, it's a beautiful spiritual collaboration where we, um, come together and did a lot of soul singing and then eventually did a uh, solstice performance where um, Angela helped to lead us on a journey for um, Grandmother Owl primarily <clears throat> and it was a beautiful winter ceremony and uh, it was actually my first really performancey performance <laughs> really because that's where I first like saw you was the, at that event that's yeah amazing. it was it was a really it was I couldn't have asked for a more perfect first performance because everybody was in such an amazing vibe and so calm and grounded and present and um and so were the women with me everyone was so so calm and grounded and like it we had just we had been practicing 
for months just in that same calm grounded vibe and uh supporting each other that way so it really just like it just flowed and after i played the first song like it just i was like cool this is <laughs> this is awesome <laughs> Oh, that's so wonderful. It was such a beautiful transmission. I'm so grateful to have been there. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was just so blessed to be part of it. When Angela asked me to join, I was like, me? Like, really? Like, <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> I was just, yeah, I felt just so blessed to be along for, for that. And, um, and I'm really grateful for having be able to just hold space in that way and to have been able to have that as my first like performance it was so amazing yeah, yeah. and what about so this beautiful journey through music how does that weave in with your journey to being an end-of-life doula so um i've always been i don't know a little eccentric and weird and into different things um exploring different different spiritualities um and looking into death is just um something that i have been interested in from probably my university days um a lot of end of life doulas have like these stories of profound loss that that um led them on this journey and i don't really have one of those stories um it's just, it was just always an interest of mine to support end of life. And um, I, in university days, I had tried to go and do some hospice volunteering. And again, just sort of life circumstances came up and I wasn't able to do it at that time. But um, after doing some spiritual work, I got into um, some Tibetan Buddhist death rituals and practices which are really good for releasing fear and I spent some time at a toad retreat on Denman Island which was really amazing and so that was one of my first sort of formal forays into death work and then um, just reading books by various authors and um, my mother actually works for a cemetery board and she does a lot of the uh, administrative work there and handling sort of the logistics of um of people's death and their funerals and how that is undertaken um in the jewish community and she's found a lot of richness and beauty there and shared a lot of that with me over the years of her being there and um explored her own mortality through that and so we've had some conversations and um and then last summer, we both took together the end of life doula program at Douglas College, which is a wonderful program. Uh, it's, you know, uh, I can't remember how many weeks the course was, but um, it has a richness of, of information, you know, just about how to support clients uh, through the administrative side of death and dying, all the way through the emotional side and the logistical side, what to expect. Um, very rich program, and uh, I was really grateful to complete that and to meet some of the lovely people who were also doing the program. 
uh, there were some people doing the program who, were, who had already been doing death work for a really long time and were just uh, complimenting their work. And so there were some amazing conversations that happened there and I'm really grateful for that. So that was um, just me sort of formally committing to this is the work, I really wanna do this work. And I'm at a place now where my kids are a bit older and my youngest is going into kindergarten this fall, you know, things go, <laughs> things go according to plan. Um, and so I have a little more room to support people other than my kids. So over the winter months, I, I also completed the, um, hospice training at a uh, local hospice society and have been volunteering at a hospice as well, which has been a very rich experience. Just like, I feel incredibly honored actually to have been invited into that space. I often, I often am met with like, Oh, that sounds like really hard, heavy work. <clears throat> and for me, like it is heavy it is heavy, but it's also like such a huge honor and privilege that I don't, you know, I don't experience it in the same way as sort of one would experience their own loss and their own, um, in their own life. Uh, it's a different, it's a different experience supporting people in their losses than going through your own loss, for sure, because uh, this is not, you know, my space of grief. So I'm just sort of an like just an honored guest at the table of somebody else's grief. So and somebody else's transition into you know, I, I don't know for sure. I, I'm not, um, <laughs> not totally for sure about what happens after we, we transition from this life to the next one. I have a lot of ideas, but, um, I'm not cemented in any one of them. So just to be present when someone is doing that incredible transition work, just like being present for the birth of a child is like, whew, wow, huge a huge energetic shift it's 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 similar for for people who are dying in that it's a massive energetic shift and people are are often just opening so much and so i'm just really grateful for that and grateful to be in a space where people are so open and so just just being themselves like really like there's so much authenticity happening around around death and to be present for that is like amazing it's a, it's amazing um yeah so it's heavy and you're definitely sitting with heavy heavy feelings and people are doing heavy work but at the same time it's like wow <laughs> it's i feel very privileged Mm. Yeah. And so when you are this honored guest, how, how does an, how do you as an end of life doula provide support to 
those who are dying, those who are our family, friends of those who are dying. What, what, what does that look like? Yeah. So honestly, the biggest, the biggest thing is just being a, an active listener and holding space. Like that is the primary thing that most end of life doulas are doing is holding space and doing really deep active listening because people just want to express themselves. They want their needs, needs heard. Um, so that is huge, especially in hospice, like in, in, in hospice, I'm not an, I'm not an end of life doula there. Like I'm, I'm doing death work, but I'm, it's, <clears throat> I'm, it's not my role there. I'm a volunteer. So in hospice, that is all I'm doing really is being there emotionally supporting people, sometimes physically a little bit by getting people, you know, drinks and, um, and, you know, helping to, um, stock rooms and things like that. Um, but that is primarily the work that you're doing in a hospice, like as a volunteer, you're just sitting, you're just, um, you're just being with people, especially family members who are coming in to visit. <clears throat> so deep listening is, is number one and just most of the work to be totally honest. Uh, and then aside from that, um, lots of other things. So there are, you know, some logistical things that happen around death and dying and, um, I can support people with that in terms of advanced care planning. So for people who um, are actively aware that they're transitioning out of this life, um, there's definitely some things you can do in terms of paperwork, in terms of legalities, where if you want to have uh, a certain death experience, if you're going to be in a hospital um, or hospice, any sort of um, public care facility or, or care facility in general, um, you can have your wishes known, written out, and they have to be upheld once they're in those documents. Um, so if there are any medical procedures that you'd like to avoid or that you'd like to make sure you have, or if you'd like your pain managed in certain ways, or if you'd like your environment to be in a certain way, um, whatever sounds you might like to have there, whatever smells, whatever foods, whatever people you'd like to be there, you can you can lay all of this out, and I and I do recommend that people do do that if they if these things are really important to them, which they are to most people. Most people, when considering their their own passing, have an idea of how they would like things to go, or at least how they'd like things to not go. Um, that's a big one. You know, this is how I would not like this to go. Um, and if we can avoid that, well, you know, um, have somebody specify that in an advanced care plan. So advanced care planning is, is a really important piece. And I can do that for people at any stage in the game. You don't have to have a diagnosis or anything like that. You don't have to be actively dying. Uh, you can just be somebody who, it, you know, is just trying to plan for their future as much as writing a will is important, especially if you have kids and um, it, an advanced care plan is just as important if you, if you really think about how you would like things to go. 
So that's a big piece as well. And I can do, I can sit and just do advanced care planning with, with people and just in a one-off session, if people want to do that. Um, But for people, yeah, who are, who are actively transitioning out to uh, another helpful role that end of life doulas can step into is being sort of a, a space holder at, at meetings. If, if there's any sort of, tensions arising in a family unit that the person who is passing would like to address um we can sit and help hold space for families to meet and have discussions and just help nudge and provide tools for friendly dialogue and often just being another body in the room is helpful when when big conversations are happening so that's another way that we can we can support. Um, another way we can support is uh, vigiling, which is sitting bedside with somebody who is at their last stages of of transitioning out of this life. So when somebody's actively dying, often caregivers need a break just to take care of their own personal needs, and sometimes things can stretch stretch out for longer than um, you might expect. And especially with modern medical interventions where um, people's lives are being prolonged with, um, with different assistive technology and things like that. So if caregivers just would like to have, um, or if the, if the person who's dying um, has expressed that they'd, they would always like to have somebody present with them when they're dying, then that's something an end of life doula can do as well is to sit bedside and, and be present holding a hand or just, you know, um, being there with gentle touch or just holding, holding, holding the space. Mm. So vigiling is another service we can provide often more often than not, it's family members who are doing that because it's usually very, very important, but you do, you know, once in a while get into situations where people don't have a lot of family or friends and, and need someone to sit with them. So that's another thing we can do. Um, and then there's also a lot of referral happening where uh, we can be a resource for resources for people just being familiar with all the community organizations that can support people when they're dying is a huge piece because there are a lot of organizations and um, that's a big piece just knowing knowing when to refer out knowing when counseling might be helpful because there are some amazing grief counselors out there and um, and grief can look so different and it looks different for everybody it is absolutely different for everybody and there's different types of grief there's complicated grief there's um, anticipatory grief Um, a lot of people who are actively dying from terminal illnesses uh, can experience anticipatory grief in that um, they're going through this series of losses as their body just stops functioning in the way that it did before. Um, so as an end of life doula, you can sit and hold space and be supportive for people who are experiencing that kind of 
grief of and their loss of their own functions. Um, that's that's a huge piece for people who are actively dying. Um, so that's another thing we can support. And then if it becomes you know very complicated, then we can refer out to other professionals who are um, perhaps like a little better trained to support more complex situations like that. Yeah, and we can also um, be supportive of parents who have lost an infant, you know, maybe a premature loss um, or a stillbirth or situations like that. We can uh, be supportive where there's been, um, you know, an unantici unanticipated loss that's happened. Uh, we can be called in in those situations as well to support emotionally and to refer out to community resources um, because there's lots of great resources for that as well. So parents who are going through um, these experiences might reach out to a end-of-life doula as well. So yeah, I hope that I hope that touched on most of the things that we do there's there's a lot of the thing a lot of things that we do um i personally my specific beyond those things that pretty well all end-of-life doulas do my specific areas of interest in supporting people are um supporting people with um complex neurological differences like autism adhd um different neurodiversities as I'm a neurodiverse person and my children are also neurodiverse and I spent um, quite a few years as a as a person in the community supporting people with um, disabilities and and complex needs so that's something I'm interested in doing and helping to advocate for safe dying spaces for people who have different needs um, because especially in hospital situations, uh, there, there's so much sensory stuff going on. <clears throat> and um, as somebody with really intense sensory needs myself and raising two children with, with sensory needs, I can anticipate that people who are autistic, people with different diverse needs might have you know, an even more intense or a different experience of um, death and dying and might need additional supports and advocacy within the system. Because, you know, you might be looking at being in a room with really bright lights, with machines clicking, you know, with people touching you in ways that you aren't comfortable with. Um, there's a lot of things that can come up that, you know, might be mildly irritating for for somebody who is um, not experiencing neurodiversity, but um, might be like just extremely, extremely uncomfortable or intolerable for people who have diverse needs. So that's, that's an area that I'm interested in supporting specifically, because I feel like um, as these populations are aging and, um, and it's, it's different now for these populations than it was, um, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, so I can, I can anticipate that there'll, there'll be a need for advocacy in those areas for people to get the death experience that they want. 
And that's really the key. That's really the key summation sentence is like, we're here to help you in ways that we can anticipate, get the death experience that you would prefer to have. So if you, you know, we can't control the, the way that we pass. We don't know uh, for sure how we're going to die, but we definitely can take some steps to, you know, within, um, within the circumstances of how things are happening, we can, we can take steps to bring that closer in alignment to what you would like to see happen because we do have a lot of choice and the medical system does not always make you aware of the choice that you have. So um, that's, that's another piece. I've always been an, an, um, an activist. (laughs) So advocacy is a big piece for me. And I really, you know, from my own birth experiences, experienced how much the, um, medical system can steer you into these um, ways of, of experiencing certain medical situations that you don't need to go along with. You don't need to be steered that way. So uh, there is a lot of choice that people aren't necessarily aware of. You can make the choice to die in your own home and be supported there. Dying in your own home doesn't, doesn't mean you know, being alone, being unsupported, not having medications, not having supportive equipment, you can have all of those things in your home. Palliative care can come to you in your home and um, you can receive care and you can die at home in a space that you're comfortable with. So that's definitely um, an option that I like to make people aware of in my advocacy um, because you don't have to do necessarily what everyone tells you that you should do (laughs) because after all this is your death and this is the one time you're going to do it in this body so if you want it to go a certain way I'm I'm going to help you as much as I can um, make that happen for you because I feel it's it's just it's so vital in having such such a massive energetic experience to have that occur in a space with the people you care about um and you know in the environment that you would like yeah so that's that's a big piece for me advocacy is a huge piece for me especially for people with neurodiversities um and then also another piece for me is um is just inviting people uh, to explore aspects of spiritual care because I'm a very spiritual person and I don't hide that. Um, I feel that um, when people are open to it, spiritual care can be very, very helpful in the death and dying experience. And there have been, there has been some research done that indicates um, people have better mental health outcomes when they're doing spiritual care up towards death and dying. So, um, and the way that looks for me is I don't suggest anything in particular. I just explore, explore that with a client, you know, what does spiritual care look for you? Are you interested in spiritual care and how can we, how can we access that, that care for you? 
because I feel like it's really vital and it's often missed until sort of the last moments where people are like, oh my gosh, you know, um, where am I going? What does this mean? And so um, rather than letting it get to last moments, um, I definitely encourage people to explore spirituality and what, what that means in terms of death and dying, because it can help so much in terms of processing things, in terms of getting comfortable, um, both physically and psychologically, um, because we, we know those things are connected. So just uh, being able to help clients uh, reach out to the community in the way that they need to get the spiritual care that they need and not prescribing anything in particular. Um, I certainly can make suggestions if people want suggestions um, of people who can help spiritually. Um, but I, yeah, I just, the, the number one piece there with spiritual care is just helping folks find what works for them. So whether that's reaching out to a church, if somebody, if somebody's part of a church community or, you know, whether that's going and talking to a shamanic healer or whether it's, um, you know, just uh, talking to people in their cultural community and seeing what, what spiritual caregivers are look like in that community if they haven't explored that already in their life. Um, and that I feel is a really big piece of what I like to explore. That's maybe different than other, than other end of life doulas, just making sure that if it's, if, if you would like spiritual care that you're able to access it and you're able to, get the spiritual care that you need. So that's a big piece for me too. Mm -hmm. And I do also have a lot of um, sound healing tools that I can bring to clients because I have um, a lot of instruments. I have a lot of really cool acoustic instruments that are really dreamy and soft and relaxing that I can bring to clients and um, help to create a peaceful space for them uh, when I come and do work. So that's something that's also individual that I, that I can offer and I like to offer. Please pardon the interruption in this wonderful podcast episode. I'd like to take a moment to share with you the opportunity to be in community and supported in your at-home practice of self-love. I invite you to join the Sacred Circle Collective. This is a group of like-hearted people who gather at each quarter moon to complete a practice, whether that be meditation, movement, breath work, or any of the other fun stuff that we get up to in the space. This collective is about setting aside one hour each week to invest in yourself. If you are listening to this podcast episode, then I believe that you are conscious, curious, and open to practicing self-love. Click the link in the show notes for further information and to claim your first month free. That's all replays, four live practices, and the chance to be in this community at no charge with no obligation. I am so grateful and excited to share this space with you, and I can't wait to see you in there. And now, back to the podcast. You mentioned-
mentioned to me um, a legacy project that you're working on, which um, kind of intertwines the various medicines that you hold. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so I just recently, within the last year, launched, sort of really soft launched, <laughs> um, this project called A Song to Remember, which uh, utilizes my skills sort of as a recording engineer in helping people to create a musical piece or just a sound, a sound piece, an audio bite, whatever they want to create whether it's spoken word, whether they have a song they've written that they want to lay down and record, um, whether they just have some lyrics um, that they would like put to music or a spoken word put to music. The idea is to uh, create a musical piece or a sound piece that um, either the dying person helps to create in order to leave behind as a legacy for their loved ones, or um, or whether it's a piece that that loved ones come together and create after somebody has passed in their memory and in their honor, and and um, so I can help in various ways, either by just simply recording and producing something that that you have already or I can help compose a piece that goes to your lyrics or your spoken word. And we can sort of talk about genres and what, what, um, what music you like. And, and I can do my best to compose something that, uh, that aligns with, with the things that you like and that goes with um, whatever you've given me in terms of spoken word or, or lyrics. And then I can either record record the client's voice um or i can certainly i i'm certainly open to recording my own voice too um but i feel like it's probably the most mem memorable and and um and from the heart when somebody takes part in some of the recording and putting their voice to the to the track at least um so yeah i offer a, a wide array because just you know i record what you want to put or i can help you compose something. and put on CD or you can um, have it on streaming services uh, and, and then you can en enjoy it for years to come. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people even like to have something that they can play at a service or a ceremony. So I can help um, create a piece uh, that you can involve in ceremony as well. Um, I created a piece that was played at my grandmother's ceremony uh, that was really, really helpful for my mom to um, process and just to have, I wasn't able to be there at her ceremony. So um, it was sort of a way for me to be there, um, have my energy there and my mom really appreciated having that there um so yeah that's a project that i'm interested in in delving more into for for people and uh if i end up with a client who's interested then i can tack that on and we can we can do that and the thing um that uh 
that I feel I need to mention too is that I have a portable studio. So you don't need to come to me. Um, you don't need to, you know, if, as someone who's actively dying, I can come, I can come to you. I can come and bring my microphone and my laptop and we can record where you are and where you're comfortable. So that's a big piece as well. You don't have to go into like a recording studio and be uncomfortable and, you know, spend a long time out of rest um, in order to get this pro this kind of project done. I can come to you, we can record it, and then I can go and do the production and at, at my own home and, and take care of that. But that was something I really wanted to offer because um, I know that it's not feasible for a lot of people to venture out and record something outside of where they are at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what a beautiful offering that is that just, yeah, it just feels good in my heart when I, when I picture it. Um, I was wondering your thoughts on, on death. Um, we, Th this offering, this podcast offering is all about self-love, coming home to self. And on my journey, what I've found um, is that um, aversion creates suffering um, as well as attachment. But in this case, if I'm speaking about death on my path, I've always been quite averse to the idea of death. Um, mm -hmm. And it creates suffering in my being, the fear associated with death and I was just wondering if you'd be willing to share any of your thoughts around death fear um, in in association with the, the work that you do absolutely yeah um, and I've got to say this you know situation that we're we're in with uh, COVID-19 has had me thinking about it even more uh, because I do believe that there are different narratives around death that are helpful and different narratives around death that aren't helpful and aren't healthy. Um, and it's largely, it's largely a control thing. I find um, a lot of our thoughts about death and our feelings about death come down to sort of how out of control of that we are. It's, you know, one one experience in our life that we absolutely we 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 are not in control of that um and it's also something that we all share we all have this in common every single one of us is is going to die and it's we've come i, I feel like as a society we've become in some ways not in as much right relationship with that as we as we could be. Um, and one of the ways that I think exemplifies that is, is looking at some other cultures and looking at cultures who are in right relationship with death and seeing how, how well that works for people in these cultures. And then looking at the way we're handling it in some situations in Western societies and seeing how much suffering there is there. And so going back to, yeah, how it's, it's about control. I think it's, we're so out of control. Um, and we've developed all these superstitions and, you know, feelings 
about how, you know, if we talk about it, then somehow we're going to, we're going to bring it on or invite the energy of death in. But we have to realize, I think that the energy of death is always here, whether we want to um, acknowledge that it is or not. It's like looking at the shadow of oneself, you know, um, the shadow is always there, whether you want to look there or not. Um, and, and the same is for death. I mean, death is almost like the ultimate shadow experience, right? Like it's, 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 um, it's heavy. It's heavy. Um, in, in, in a lot of ways, because many of us don't know for sure what's going to happen. And, and even in cases where people are pretty convinced about what's going to happen when they go to the other side, a lot of, um, written experiences about what people start feeling when it's when death is right there is a feeling of wow i really actually don't know for sure um so that's a huge piece and you know talking about death discussing death in my humble opinion um is only going to make that experience, you know, more familiar to you when it does happen. So I think that it's absolutely vital that we all sit with our feelings around it. And that's something that as a culture, we've been almost actively discouraged not to do. Like, you know, we don't talk about death. We don't, you know, we don't look, we don't look at it. We don't want to look at people's bodies anymore um we don't want to be in the room with people's bodies anymore um and it's become very sterilized and i think that bringing back bringing back ceremony and richness to death practices is is really necessary like not even just recommended like i feel like it's necessary like i feel like we really need to do this work if we're going to be comfortable with our own death uh, as much as we can be comfortable with it um we're not always going to know for sure what's going to kill us um you know some of us might get advanced notice we might have a terminal illness um some people some of us might pass suddenly we don't know um but some of the work that we can do that can help us feel more comfortable is to take some control in different ways um you know and control is really an illusion anyway <laughs> for me <laughs> we can we can think we're in control um in so many situations and then the universe and mother earth can quickly show us that we really aren't, but um, we can plan and we can, we can take some control. Um, like I, I mentioned earlier, we can make our wishes known with an advanced care plan. And if we don't talk about what our wishes are, I mean, beforehand, we're going to have to talk about it when things are happening or our relatives are going to have to talk about it on our behalf. And we have to really think about, is that something that we want our, our loved ones and relatives to, to have to do on our behalf. Do we want to give that work to them? Um, especially when 
when you're in a situation where, you know, you, you maybe don't want them to have to be doing that work then. Maybe you just want to be with them at that time. When, when we are actually, actually actively dying, you know, we don't want to be doing paper, paperwork. We don't want to be discussing our plans, you know, necessarily at that time. Some people do. Um, but a lot of us just want to be with people that we love and doing the things that we want to do. We don't want to be doing all of that legwork at that time. So, so discussing these things beforehand, you know, it's only going to make the experience easier when it comes up. Um, and you know, we, we might even change our opinions and that's okay. Like, you know, we, these, these documents and these decisions aren't set in stone. We can make changes to them at any time. Um, it's not set in stone, but just having some conversations about it and even just thinking about it, just thinking about it and sitting with that, thinking about, Hey, you know, what, what would I like this experience to look like if I was in some control of it? Um, is a way of processing those feelings. And a lot of people do come up with like really big feelings when, when they're having these um, planning sessions. And uh, so I do encourage people to reach out to an end of life doula when they are, if, if they haven't, you know, been used to exploring these things, because some people can all of a sudden be hit with like a really huge wave of emotion and not necessarily know how to process it or who to talk to about it uh, because a lot of people are not comfortable talking about death for the reasons I mentioned. They feel like, you know, it's just an icky taboo thing. We don't talk about it or it happens. Um, so, so yeah, so sitting with those experiences that you might like to have um, when you're dying is a really helpful way to be in more right relationship with death because whether you think about it or not, it's going to happen. It's going to happen one day. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> um, so yeah. And so that's a way of being in right, right relationship with it. And, um, and being in right relationship with your family and loved ones, just making sure they don't have to do that work for you. You know, do you, and, and thinking about what happens afterwards, what, what would you like to happen to your body? Do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? You know, and there's so many options for each. Like those aren't the only two options. There's so many options now and there's green burial. Um, and, uh, there's, there's so many, so many ways that, um, that you can choose to have your body return to the earth. Um, I mean, I, I think I've even heard of, you know, people shooting, th shooting things into space and things like that. There's just, there's just the wildest, there's the wildest things. I mean, you can have ashes put into jewelry pieces. There's, there's some, there's some wacky ones out there too. Like just some really, <laughs> for people who have a really rich sense of humor <laughs> and want, and want that to continue on. There's some good things out there. Um. So thinking about that, thinking about what, uh, what you want to happen with your body and what you want to happen around your body when, when you die. Um, because people of different spiritual traditions, you know, don't necessarily believe that that's it. 
you know, when the, some people believe that you might be hanging around a little bit and, you know, um, so depending on what your beliefs are, like what happens with your body might actually be really important to you if you actually stop to think about it and just, you know, stop avoiding, stop avoiding and actually just stop and go, wow, actually that is important to me. Um, I always had thought that, oh, just cremation, you know, just, just, just cremation, whatever. I'm not here anymore. So whatever. And, um, and I didn't give it a lot of thought. And, um, after, you know, doing a lot of spiritual work and, um, and talking to my mom actually about, um, her experiences with the, um, Jewish cemetery board and some of the ways that the Jewish community, um, handles the, the body of a, of a loved one, um, has really just opened, opened my mind to like, actually, I don't think I want to be cremated. And, and, um, so this, so this year, this last like eight months is just, I think it was last, I think it was this year. I think it was this, the beginning of this year that, um, my mom actually purchased a plot for her and I, uh, at a green burial site at a heritage heritage gardens in Surrey in Surrey. And it's a beautiful space and having that purchased and having and seeing going there, seeing where my body would be. And it's a beautiful, lovely space. There's deer going through there. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful space. And just seeing it, it gave me a sense of like, just relief and peace. And it wasn't like this dreaded, like experience, like, Ooh, you know, like, yuck, I have to look at where I'm going to go. You know, it was actually like, okay, like this is where I would like to go. And this is, this is what I would like to happen um, with my body when, when I'm no longer using it. Um, and it wasn't just burning it up and just whatever, <laughs> you know, even though I thought it was in doing in doing deeper contemplation it was like actually no like i i do want to be buried and that's a it's a really important piece if you have specific wishes about what you want to happen with your body when you pass you absolutely need to make it known before you pass because um for one the different burials have a much different cost so if, um, if you're looking at wanting a, a burial and not a cremation, something simple, then you're looking at your loved ones then enduring a large cost on your behalf if you haven't planned for it accordingly. Mm. So um, that's, that's one thing I don't want to, you know, end up with a $10,000 price tag attached to my, my death when I'm gone and leave that, leave that to my family. So making sure that I, you know, now, now that I knew, okay, I want a burial. I don't want to just be cremated. Um, I had to make sure that I financially planned for that as well. Cause it's, it's a big piece. There are lots of costs are around death and dying and you don't want to just leave that for your loved ones because you want to be able to let them process and let them grieve. Um, and you know, let, let them be with, be with your spirit, be with your memory. Um, in a way that, that doesn't have a bunch of paperwork and a bunch of 
other stuff attached to it. So that was, that was a way, another way of just like achieving some peace for me. It was just like, okay, you know, huge, huge shift for me when I actually sat with that. Um, And peace like that and that, and that it's that peace that is so in service of self-love. Yes. This internal peace that you don't have to suffer and avoid and push away. It takes so much energy to avoid things. Oh my gosh. So much energy. Yeah. Yeah. So much energy that you could be then using in your life to live your best life. And that is, you know, in this conversation about control and death and dying, um, that it really is where you have the control that's where you have the control. We're in control of, of how we live our life when we're here and the decisions that we make, um, in our day-to-day life. And when we're not contemplating the wholeness of it, which includes death, we might not be living our best life. Mm. And I find that living my best life absolutely has been very tied to the awareness that I have of my own mortality. When I get caught up and I feel invincible and I, you know, don't actively contemplate my own mortality, I can get complacent and passive and stuck. I can get distracted and just go down these paths of just, you know, not quite doing what I need to be doing. And that's, I mean, so much the Western culture is distraction and, you know, don't look here, look here. (laughs) Because if you look here, it's really heavy and you're going to have some feelings. (laughs) Um, But if we don't look there and we don't, we don't experience the feelings, then we don't experience the richness. We don't experience the richness of life and what we can offer. And thinking about what we can offer and what the gifts we can offer and what we can do is so tied to our own understanding that we have a limited time to do it. Mm. Yeah. Because if we just think, hey, you know, death, that doesn't, that doesn't happen that doesn't happen to me. It happens to everyone else. It doesn't happen to me. Um, if we think that way, then we won't get the things done that we want. We want to get done. We won't get those projects started that we want to get started. We won't heal those relationships that we need to get healed. That's a huge thing that happens for people when they're on their way out is they're like, "Uh Oh, I have this relationship work to do. And, you know, and if we don't look at it, early enough, sometimes that work doesn't get done um, for families. And that can be really hard for the people who are left behind, who um, are now, you know, trying to do that healing work without the active participation of the other um, person that has left. So doing, doing the emotional work that we need to do now and understanding that, yes, we are going to die. And yes, we have a limited time here is is so important like it's just vital 
I'm actually going to get my first tattoo um, at the end of August <laughs> that says Memento Mori. And that basically means like, you know, remember that we all must, we all are going to die. Um, and I, I want that on my arm. I want to look at it every day. I want to be like, okay, you know, <laughs> definitely going to die. And so I, you know, if I'm going to die tomorrow, what am I going to do today? How am I going to live differently today? And, and that's a really good exercise that people can do and, and give themselves different timelines. You know, okay, what if I died tomorrow? You know, what would I want to do today? Well, who, what would I want to say? Or you can give yourself a week timeline. You know, what if I died a week from now? What would I like to do this week? Or you can give yourself a month or a year and just do a reflection. Like what is the, and it really quickly uh, opens up opens up uh your consciousness to what is the most important thing for you to do and for many people it, it's relationship things like you know whew, if i die tomorrow i really want to say this one thing to this certain person or you know i really like to give this one person a hug or you know i'd really like to you know you know spend spend the day at this special place with my kids or um, it's so often a relationship thing. And, and then, and then it's also often a creative, creative thing. What would I like to create before, before I pass, you know, what song would I like to write? What painting would I like to paint? You know, what sculpture would I like to create? Um, and then, you know, you know, where, where would I like to go? What places would I like to see? What, you know, where would I like to go and just be with the earth? Um, just having that sort of bucket list prioritized every day, I feel is really important. Um, <clears throat> and that's where, that's where our control is. You know, we can't control how we're going to die. <clears throat> we can't control, you know, realistically all the viruses and bacteria that are present on the earth. You know, um, we can't control these things. Um, things are beyond our control. So if we can't control those things, yeah, like how, how can we control it? Are we going to live in fear? Are we going to, you know, be in the space of fear and not do the things that we wish we could do and that give our life richness? Or are we going to realize that we're mortal and do those things? Um, because in Western society, it has become a little bit of a quantity over quality situation in some cir circumstances. And especially when we look at like long-term medical interventions and, and things like that. Um, I have spoken to, you know, some elderly people who my, my grandmother included, you know, who feel like they're at a place where they're just like, God, like, you know, I just want to die already. You know, like I'm, I've had my life and I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it, you know, like to the degree that I can be. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm ready now. And some people find themselves in a circumstance where, um, where medical interventions are just kind of maybe prolonging the quantity a little bit, but really reducing the, qu the quality so much that it just, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't leave the person with the experience of the richness of life. Um, so 
yeah, we have to, I think, come more into a place of balance of, of, of let's look at the quality of our life rather than just the quantity, like rather than, you know, how long we can stretch it out. Let's look at what can we do with, with the time that we have here, because we never truly know how much time we have here. You know, we could, there could be a freak accident that comes along and, you know, that might be it. So knowing that, you know, we could be doing all the things that we feel are in our power to maintain quantity, but we're not doing the things that maintain quality, like healing our relationships and creating and being with people we want to be with, going to spaces we want to be, be in and, you know, within reason, obviously. Um, Yeah, I, I, um, I really appreciate that the, the quantity versus quality um, statement. And that's something that's very pervasive in our culture outside of our age as well. In everything that we do, I feel like that touches, right? Um, grind culture, all this kind of stuff. And for me, um, and just kind of, it, it's important for me to ask you about um, to touch on this this idea of white supremacy, where this quantity over quality piece is rooted, right? Like there's there's a rooting of this quantity over quality in this culture that that we currently are in. Um, and so yes, it touches many things and and it speaks to this piece about self-love and about coming home to what we truly are. And there's this large shift in consciousness that is happening right now. And especially you and I just sitting here and talking about death, right. And, and to whoever's listening, just listening and and embracing this idea of our own mortality. Um, On the note of um, race, which is extremely present right now. um, We spoke prior to recording, you identify as a white woman. I identify as a white woman. Um, And just based on your experience with you being who you are um, here in this lifetime, I'm wondering whether you can speak to any of your thoughts, either in the work that you do in your personal life, um, any thoughts that you have around, you know, circumstances that Black, Indigenous, and people of color are facing, or what steps you might be taking to unlearn, or also any community educators that you might be wanting to uplift in this space? Yes, certainly. Um, this is, you know, a, a heavy topic and I, I definitely am used to heavy topics. So I, I can absolutely speak to that. Um, I feel uh, definitely what I, what has come up just now is that as a, a white woman, sitting here being able to have this conversation about death is a huge part of, of my privilege. Um, having the space to contemplate your own death, having, having the supports that allowed me to take this course to be able to assist other people, um, to have time in my life to volunteer and do, do this work. 
um, is a huge privilege. Uh, and, and many um, people of color, indigenous persons, um, don't have the privilege of a lot of space to sit and process because many people are in situations of poverty um, and, you know, in, in, in this and have been ma marginalized in such a way that they don't have the time and space to do the work. You know, they might be working, people might be working multiple jobs just to keep food on the table for their family. There might be, you know, domestic violence occurring because of the stresses of marginalization. There are so many situations that that can occur um, because of marginalization that just lead to not having the space to take care of your mental health. So I really feel that I should be using my own privilege to help people uh, who are marginalized to access a good death. At this point, I honestly have to be a like I have to be a hundred percent honest that I'm struggling with how to do that. Mostly, you know, in that my family does have a lot of complex needs. So um, I personally, you know, don't have a ton of my own spoons to offer um, in terms of doing a lot of pro bono work and, and things like that. Um, I do do pro bono work and I'm very open to it, but you know, Again, um, quantity and quality, I don't have a lot of quantity that I can offer just because of my own life circumstance. Um, I don't actually even have a lot of, I don't, I don't have any active clients right now because I, um, since COVID, um, have been at home with my kids and um, taking care of their needs. And I, I did actually lose almost all of my community supports um, we had a lot of community supports, as I mentioned, like we're an autistic family. So um, we lost all of our supports um, through that. So I, I'm at this place where I'm really deeply struggling with, you know, how can I take a, a balance in supporting my kids and their diverse needs and also making sure that I'm amplifying people who are marginalized and um, who might be needing these kinds of services. Um, one of the things I think that I've been doing is just engaging in the, the deep listening that I mentioned and just spending a lot of time listening to the voices of Indigenous people, people of color, 
spending time hearing their voices, seeing what is needed. And I have been doing, you know, a lot of keyboard activism and signing petitions and writing emails and things like that. Cause I am in the space where I can do that. I can send an email while I'm at home here with my kids. Um, I can make a phone call. I can do those sorts of things. Um, but in terms of really being out on the ground in the community, um, I would like to be able to do more, but I can't do a lot right now, realistically. Um, one of the things that I uh, was looking at in, into pursuing was uh, this beautiful um, indigenous allyship training um, on Bowen Island by uh, Puhaniks. And she, we can link to um, her, her Facebook page, her business page uh, in the, in the comments and uh, because she, I, I've been highly recommended um, by a few indigenous friends to go and do her training. Um, as uh, she sounds like a really amazing, wonderful, loving human being who provides a beautiful space for people to go and be uncomfortable because that's really what this situation <laughs> requires. Uh, is to be uncomfortable and that's you know something I am used to doing I am used to being uncomfortable I mean both in the situations of death and dying and in the situations of of being an autistic person who doesn't always know what to say um, <clears throat> or what to do appropriately um, COVID has certainly exacerbated that and now being out I'm like you know I just really don't know what to do I'm really uncomfortable with all the different new protocols and things I never know if I'm doing the right thing um the last thing I want to do is uh hurt anybody else or harm anybody else um or make anyone else feel like they're not safe so Um, I had been planning on doing that training, which uh, I'd hoped would, would help me um, understand what I can do, what I can actively do, because that is, that is something that um, I have been struggling with. It's like, what actually can I actively do? Um, because for me, it looks like radical societal restructuring, like for me, that is, is needed, it deeply needed and, and, and I've known of that need for quite some time, um, you know, both being an unusual person and, you know, having, having quite a few indigenous friends and being involved in alternative, alternative medical communities. Um, just understanding that the system, the political system that we have in place, the, the, legal system that we have in place, the healthcare system that we have in place, the mental health systems that we have in place, these things are not functioning well. Like, um, you know, when we vote, you know, people aren't being represented, you know, when, when, when we, um, 
when we get involved with the legal system, um, you know, it's, it's marginalizing anyone who's, you know, not white, like really, there's just so many atrocities in occurring in the, in the, in the justice system. I use hand quotes because there's really not a lot of justice happening for people who need that justice. And I think that we can look to, um, especially indigenous models of justice and learn so much from them because the way that we are handling these situations is deeply wrong. And the way that people who go to these systems for help and then are being further marginalized by these systems is so deeply appalling to me. You know, we're having indigenous people go into hospital and having their children taken away when they went there for support. Um, and we're dealing with generations and generations, especially in Canada, of, of deep, deep trauma, especially for um, our Indigenous populations with residential schools, with the 60 Scoop, with all of these really deep wounds. Um, the Starlight Tour, like there's so many things that I can mention that have caused deep generational wounds. And it's, it's, it's just being further perpetuated and nothing's been done. You know, all we've done really is, is make lip service. And that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm always aware of. And, and like, God, I really just want to make sure that I'm not just contributing to more lip service. Like I really, like, I know that people don't need that anymore. People need action. People need feet on the ground. And um, I definitely have a deep sense of guilt that comes up when, when I think of, you know, that I haven't spent a lot of time with my feet on the ground, you know. And I wish that, that I could. And so deeply listening to people right now is is what i've been doing a lot of because i honestly don't know i don't know how we go about dismantling these systems because it is such a massive undertaking that involves and and requires the participation of everybody it really does um and I'm someone who really benefits from these systems. I, I, I have two special needs kids. I benefit so much from these systems that I know marginalize other people. So it, it involves people like myself um, who benefit from these systems to be like, okay, you know, I can, I can give this up in order for that. Um, these things to be taken down and then rebuilt again in a way that is healthy for everyone. 
because it's only, it's not health. It's hardly, it's hardly healthy for anyone to be totally honest. Like, I don't feel like it's healthy for anyone because if it's not healthy for everyone, it's not healthy for anyone. Um, if we're operating with these modalities that are oppressing people, like that's just, that's not healthy for anyone. It's not healthy for the oppressor. It's not healthy for the people who are being oppressed. And I think that, you know, Mother Earth is so much of a guide here and that we can look to her and see that we're not in right relationship with each other um, by just the way that she is suffering as well. And we need to figure out a new system and I would love to be involved in, in dialogue about how that, how that can happen. Um, I've been in some dialogues and about creating more sustainable individual communities. Um, and, you know, I've, always, I've had a long-term interest in, in homesteading and learning how to return to the land and be self-sustainable so that we don't have to exist in this macro system that, involves the exploitation of all of these different groups just in order so that we can have food on the table like <clears throat> i don't want to be exploiting people so that i can feed my family like i would rather learn how to do it myself and um and help other people learn to do it themselves as well um i definitely think that um from what i've been hearing that we do need to create more micro systems, um, more local community oriented um, resources that, um, that can support the people where they are at in that particular situation, in that particular environment, in that particular culture and location and how we can how we can uh, just stop perpetuating this larger overreaching system that is just devastating. Um, but it's, it's going to require a great deal of work and a great deal of sacrifice on the part. I don't even like using the word sacrifice because I, I feel like that's, that's not even the world word I want to use. I just feel like we need to be actually just realistic and it's, it's realism. It's not sacrifice. It's realism. It's like, let's just be realistic here. And this is, you know, we need to uh, put aside the, the things that even though they might be working, you know, in the short term, for us as an individual person, like even though it's working for me as an individual person to have, you know, autism funding from the government that helps us have uh, access programming that my kids need for their mental health. Even if that's working in the short term, you know, maybe it's not working in terms of the larger picture um, for getting everyone access to what they need um so yeah having having these uncomfortable conversations even though it it feels like again i'm like 
gosh, like I, I, I don't want to just be doing lip service. Like I, there's part of me that's like, let's, I don't want to do this lip service thing that so many white people are doing. I think, you know, you have to start with the conversations. So again, being realistic, you have to start with the conversations and then I will definitely be looking to people of color, to indigenous people, to marginalized groups, looking to them to see what they need. Um, you know, just like listening, just like within my own situation of, of, of uh, being in the autistic community, you know, listening to what autistic people need. Um, we need to start doing that for all of these marginalized groups and see and and look at the more overarching themes of like you know what are the what are the structures that are harming people and how can we disassemble those things and yeah the, so the indigenous allyship training that i was going to do um has been uh postponed or canceled due to um concern for um the COVID-19 virus transmission. So um, I'm hoping that to, to participate in that when it does come up again. Um, I'm also hoping to read um, some more diverse books uh, when I have time to read. I, I honestly don't read a whole lot to begin with. Um, so that's, that's something that I want to open up in my own life and just listening and hearing these experiences and yeah, being, being involved um, on social media in uh, communities that are amplifying voices of persons of color um, is a step that I'm definitely taking. Yeah. So yeah i i appreciate yeah being more self-sustainable too like that's i feel like that's something that we can all do sorry for interrupting there um being more self-sustainable is definitely something that i'm doing actively and i feel like that that definitely um is a helpful step that anyone can take uh at this point in time you know um to make sure that we're not participating in these larger agricultural systems and, you know, um, manufacturing systems that lead to the marginalization of, of people in different countries um, that are producing these things for us. Uh, if we can be more self-sustainable, we can learn to grow our own food. If we can, um, if we can buy, locally handmade items from from people especially um from people of color um indigenous people uh if we can support local businesses again especially um from poc that's 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 an actionable step we can take in terms of dismantling the system at this point in time because um, is you know the fewer times we shop at big stores like Walmart and um, Amazon things like that uh, 
the less we're um, making it seem like we desire these these systems to remain in place. So, so your your dollar says a lot. Where you spend your money says a lot. So that's definitely an actionable step that I, I take that I have been taking for quite some time now. Um, and uh, yeah, just <clears throat> and bringing focus into your local local community. Um, as well. What can I do in my local community? Who is here in my local community that needs my support? <clears throat> because we can all get caught up in these um, higher profile cases that come into our social media. But realistically, you know, as, as a person in Canada, um, <clears throat> calling the legislatures in different countries um, isn't as helpful necessarily uh, as looking at, okay, where's, where's a more localized case that I can, um, that I can focus on. Certainly if you can focus on all of them, like that's, if you have the spoons to do that, that's fantastic. But if you're going to prioritize where you focus your efforts, like I feel like uh, it is very helpful to focus on your local community. Um, who are the marginalized people here uh, that, that, can receive your support and who need your support and activism. Um, because when you're talking to your own MLA, your own MP, your own mayor and council about things that are happening locally, that has a lot more weight than when you're calling in to a different, uh, a different jurisdiction, like maybe halfway across the world. Um, people take their own constituents much more seriously than they take people who are not their constituents because they know that you're the one who's going to be writing on the election ballot when the time comes. So um, taking local action, seeing who, who you can help in your local community, what you can do in your local community, how, what policies you can change um, locally, you know, especially in your own municipality, there can be things that you can do um, in terms of, uh, you know, opening up community spaces. Um, so getting involved municipally is really important for people. And I think a lot of people miss that and they sort of, they think about the federal government and they're, you know, um, and a lot of people miss municipal issues. A lot of people don't vote in municipal elections. So going in local, targeting things locally, is is huge and makes a really big impact i know from personal experience about you know the difference between when i contact and talk to my own mla and my own mp and my own mayor and council and when i reach out to other ones mm. um huge night and day difference yeah and i i really appreciate you naming the intersectionality of the issues right because um, it's not always so very clear cut. Um, we are all complex beings who sit with various identities. And so I really appreciate you naming your intersections of identity and how you're navigating this landscape, um, acknowledging both. And we really do get to sit with, with that, um, similar to how you describe sitting with our own mortality. Like these are all interconnected things that we sit with discomfort. We sit with the paradox sometimes and, and observe 
and find our role speaking about this particular um, topic, finding our, our individual role in this, in this movement. Yes, very much. Yeah. I really appreciate you naming that because a lot of people are, are sitting with these, these intersections. Yes, absolutely. And I, I wanted to do um, to a shout out to an amazing um, end of life doula who she was actually the first person I was exposed to um, who was using that, you know, that, that terminology like for, for herself. Um, and uh, a friend had turned me on to her and um, her name's Alua Arthur and she runs Going With Grace. Um, and she actually trains death doulas, end of life doulas. And um, she, she does a lot of work within uh, the community, her own community in the black community. Um, and uh, she's been fairly vocal about, you know, how can we support um, black voices in death? Um, and how can we make, how can we make sure that more, more people of color can die a good death? Because, you know, like we, like we've come to, talk about dying a good good death is a privilege um it's a it's a huge privilege and you know um people who are being killed by the police they they're not dying a good death um and and she's spoken to this and and i was really grateful for her um voice in in this time um and her opening up about you know how how uh how can we create a good death for people of color when they're in these situations being so marginalized and really it looks like i like you know it looks like huge reforms like huge reforms and so i just yeah i wanted to shout out to her because she was very influential to me um she's uh beautifully well-spoken she actually used to be a lawyer um she's she's a very good speaker and she's very um good at creating these amazing little sound bites that you can tune in we're all so you know distracted and we all seem to be so <clears throat> limited with the time that we can offer and so she has these little sound bites that are a minute long that she likes to put out that are just these little contemplations um for you and she's she fits like just a ton of good solid information and healings and medicine into these just little one minute sound bites and i really appreciate that uh about her so much um because it really does allow these messages to reach a lot more people um <clears throat> because she's definitely a realist in understanding that, you know, um, people have a limited attention span. And so how can I get this message out? Um, so yeah, um, go, if you, if people follow going with grace, she's on Instagram, she's on Facebook. She's an amazing person of color to follow. Who's doing, doing death work. I wanted to shout out to her. Thank you. 
Thank you for sharing that. And we'll definitely link all of her information in the show notes, um, as well as um, the other training that you've mentioned as well. Awesome. I really want to thank you for taking the time and for sharing your voice on on all the wide range of things we've spoken about today. It really gives us all things to sit with. And when we leave with more questions than when we came, than what we came with, sometimes that's a real gift. And thank you for, for gifting us this opportunity. I really appreciate your time in this space. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for, for inviting me in and, and, uh, for letting me ramble and <laughs> I appreciate it so much. And yeah, if anyone does have any questions, if this has brought up anything for anyone, um, by all means, um, they're free to contact me. And, um, cause I know that, yeah, even just sitting and, and listening on a topic like this can, can be really heavy, really, really heavy for folks. Um, even just saying, even just saying the word death for people, like even just saying it out loud, even just saying dying death, you know, someone's body, even because we're so, um, averse to these terms now and, and things are, are, are being swept under the rug so much. Um, even just saying those words can be triggering for people. So, um, I guess I kind of want to almost apologize and say like, Hey, maybe I should have offered a trigger warning. I'm going to be using these kinds of words. <laughs> I can put one in the show notes. Awesome. <laughs> Cause yeah, like just the, just even those words can bring up things. So if people are sitting with discomfort and they, they don't know where to go with it, please reach out. Cause um, I can definitely, I can definitely refer you out or um, have a conversation with, with you around it. Cause uh it's, it's important to once, once things start processing to just allow, allow things to, um, to go where they need to go rather than, rather than pushing it, pushing it back down again. Cause, um, if you've, if you've given yourself the time to listen to this and if you have honored yourself in this way, um, I hope you continue to honor yourself and, and allowing these, these feelings and thoughts to, to percolate and to continue um, to help you access the medicine that you need to um, to do the work so that you can have a death experience that you would like to have one day or support somebody in having a death experience they would like to have. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Tara. I am so grateful to Jane for sharing such important considerations as we move to illuminate our shadows and let go of our fears around dying. This is the path we walk to reduce our suffering and ultimately to live in a state of unconditional self-love. Also, Jane has just released a new album on September 5th called Dimensional Shift. And it's available likely on the same platform that you are listening on now. So please give it a search and take a listen. Again, the album is called Dimensional Shift. And let me know, how are you enjoying these episodes so far? Do you have someone who you want to hear in this space or a question that you are looking to have answered? 
please connect with me on social media. And also make sure to join the From the Hearth Collective on Facebook to be involved in future live stream episodes. Finally, please do rate, review, and subscribe as this makes a huge difference in the continued viability of this offering. All links are in the show notes. I am sending you so much love, and I will see you next week. Thank you.